Good morning. How's everybody doing? If you came to first service, it was still cool outside, but it's a little warm now already. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Thanks for coming. Um, we are going to be in the book of Hosea again today. <laughs> and everyone said, oh. <laughs> it's been heavy. I know. It's been intense. That's, that's fine. It's a little better today, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's good to be together. We have been doing a lot of planning, a lot of work behind the scenes at Living Streams. We actually have a big week this week. We have um, an elders retreat on Thursday. We have a pastors all day together this week. So be praying for us as we're trying to put some finishing touches on what's next for us and where we're going, all of those things. Um, we'd appreciate the prayers there. But it's exciting. Um, the world's changing around us all the time. We're trying to figure out how to, how to be a follower of Christ in the 21st century, in the age of AI. Brittany and I were, this morning, she was like, she's teaching now, so she's like, did you know I can just type into chat <laughs> GPT? I need lessons plans for this year, and it just shoots them all out, and she's not doing that. She's, she's doing her own ones, but um, so then I was like, well, we've been doing a lot of planning. I was like, hey, hey chat GPT, could, what do I do to help people follow Christ in the 21st century? And it was like, and I was like, oh, that's a better plan than ours, you know? Um, <laughs> Not really. Ours is way better, I think. Um, but it's just, it's such a fascinating world. It's changing a lot. And, and we're excited to, to, to continue to fight the good fight of faith, um, no matter what the world around us, because the gospel is not going anywhere. And uh, Jesus is the same today and tomorrow in the future. Um, I'm so proud of you, Living Streams. This week, um, I got to see a group of guys show up at a, at a single lady's house as she had an inspection coming that was going to um, give her some information about whether she could keep living there or not. And because of all the work, she passed the inspection, which is so awesome to see. Um, I know that there was another family who um, they're connected with a lady who's actually in um, stage four cancer, and she's probably in the final stage of her life, and she has three young daughters. And they said, hey, that's okay. Why don't you guys come live with us? And so they worked hard to get a new place, and they're all living together to make sure the rest of her life goes well and that her kids are taken care of. And then I got to see a whole bunch of other people rally around them and, you know, school supplies and all these different things taken care of. It's just been so beautiful. Um, I get hit with the bird, and I'm like, oh, no, what are we going to do, Lord? And Lord's like, get out of the way. Watch this. And uh, it was really cool to see that. And Last uh, Friday night, we were here for the calling, the young adults, and we were all having a consecration service, and people were just washing each other's feet and really loving the Lord and pressing in and loving each other. So it's beautiful. I'm so thankful to be a part of a family that's really loving one another, paying attention to each other. And uh, like Paul said to the Thessalonian church, I just want to encourage you to do it more and more, more and more. There's people in this room right now who need you to reach out to them. That you can't see it. They look normal. They look churchy. But really inside, they're alone. They're going through struggles. They're challenged. We need each other from time to time. So keep going after the world. Keep serving others as Jesus has served us. Um, okay. That's all that I have to say. Oh, no. One last thing. So this and next week are our last two um, teachings in Hosea. And then on August 20th, we're starting a new series, a little short three-week series that I'm going to be preaching called Post-Christian Antidote. Now, it sounds really cool. Um, hopefully, it will be cool as well. Um, but it's basically me kind of unpacking the, 
the, the things that the Lord showed me as I was in post-Christian Ireland, outside the American bubble, um, and just really fasting and praying that the Lord might kind of start a fire in the church there, that the people of God would come back alive and, and, and be strong and be brave and be bold. And uh, it's some of the things the Lord showed me for that that I, I'm hoping will apply well as we here in our city um, are fighting against post-Christian winds all around us, no doubt about it. But there's also post-Christian winds in the church um, that maybe we don't want to acknowledge or, or, or we're not sure what to do about. And uh, so I came back and I, my jo- I'm going to make sure Living Streams does not become post-Christian. That's what we're doing. We don't know what's going to happen around us, but at least as for us in our house, right, we will serve the Lord. We're going to figure out what it means. Um, so it'll be help with that. Um, so invite people if that sounds interesting to you. Invite people if it doesn't, because maybe it'll be interesting to them. Invite people, you know, because they need Jesus. Um, anyways, so we're going to be in the book of Hosea. Uh, again, Hosea chapter 2. So you know, it seems like we should be at the end of the book, but we're actually going to chapter 2. Um, next week we'll do 14. Um, and, and wrap this thing up. But I wanted to make sure we didn't miss this. Um, as we've talked about, Hosea is a lot about consecration. God actually is accusing his people of being consecrated to Baal, another God consecrated to other things, and he's calling them to, to, to get disattached, unattached from those things and, and to consecrate themselves back to him, to return to him. And what it sounds like here is God's really saying that, that to get unattached. To break those attachments is going to be extremely painful. It will feel like discipline. It will feel like death. It'll feel like Sheol or Hades. It'll feel like death as they go through this process of pruning and discipline. But God is calling them to it so that they can avoid the judgment that is coming, which they don't do and the judgment does come. And it sure does feel a lot like hell for them. Um, But he's calling them to get unattached from those things. He wants them to repent. He wants them to return. He wants to receive discipline. The the word return is used 15 different times in this short book. Um, And then as Ryan mentioned, um, he he, he drew out this part that was so interesting, I think, and it's like what we just sang, that that God is saying, "And, and don't think I don't know when you return to me just so you can get my blessings. I'm not interested in that. Return to me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only one that can love you in truth and faithfulness. Um, so all of that is there. Um, it also, in chapter 3, is very clear that God hates raisins. You can look it up. And I, I, I amen that. So many delicious things have been ruined by raisins. Cinnamon roll, oh, so good. And then Why? Why would you put raisins in that? It's like, oh, this is so good. And then some wrinkly old dead thing just exploded in my mouth. Um, it's a waste. It's horrible. Cinnamon um, raisin bagels. I mean, could you imagine what that cinnamon bagel would be like without those nasty raisins on there? So me and, me and God were, we were on the same. That was the easy one for me. Sometimes God asked me to do hard things. That one was easy. But there, the commentary I was reading had a different take on it. Um, they were talking about the raisin cake standing for flourishing vineyards and swelling bank accounts and and we love these too much um, and we end up worshiping ourselves instead of God who makes the rainfall and the sunshine and it is true that there's just different affections and it's hard like when we're singing that song just five minutes ago 
just seems a lot easier to center ourselves, focus ourselves, and be in the spot where we say, God, I really don't want anything but you. But as soon as we leave this room and all the marketing and our own hearts, all these things, we just, it's so easy to get consumed with things of earth. The stuff of earth competes for our allegiance. But we owe ourselves only to the one who made our souls. And, um, and so that's a little bit of what we're going to be dealing with here. Ryan also mentioned, and it didn't make sense. Oh, I mean, it made sense to me, but it's just gotten a lot deeper um, when he mentioned that if you don't understand marriage, you're going to have a hard time understanding Hosea. And really, that's where we're going today. We're going to be talking about what it means to be intimate with God. <laughs> I say that now, not at the beginning. We didn't advertise that because no guys would show up. Um, but it is true that this call of Hosea is a call to be intimate with God. And, uh, and it's scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous. Now think about it. Hosea himself came on the scene as a prophet of God saying, hey, I feel like God's telling me to go marry a prostitute. If someone came to you and said that, you'd be like, okay, do we have any other prophets <laughs> that we can listen to? Because this one doesn't sound quite right. This one sounds like he's got a different God than the one we're talking about. So the scandalous life that he lived, that God called him to, would discredit him so much from being an authority to speak on God's voice. And then his message was also scandalous. As he was basically telling, and we'll get into it, that God loves the people of Israel, loves his people like a husband loves his wife and wants to relate with them as if they're married. Scandalous. That's blasphemous. That doesn't seem right. You can imagine people being so upset about that. And yet Hosea has been preserved for all these thousands of years by people, but also the Spirit of God, so that we could learn from it. Though it's so scandalous, it's got so much important things for us to learn from. So let's read in Hosea chapter 2, um, 14 through 22. I'm going to read it from the ESV because that's what's up on the screen. Hosea 2, 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. The valley of Accor is a reference to the first time God's people went a-whoring after other gods. And God's basically saying that even all the things that were wrong, even all the brokenness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make into a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of the land of Egypt. Basically, she's going to answer as, in, as when we first started being together. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the balls. From, her, um, from the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And the word know in Hebrew there has some really deep connotation. 
And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So here is the word of the Lord spoken to the people where God basically is saying, I have a problem with you, Israel. You're going to go through a lot of challenges because your heart is not for me. You've turned to other gods and you're going to get the fruit of what those other gods give. And sure enough, just after this, the Assyrian army came down and decimated the people of Israel, the northern ten tribes, in horrific, horrific ways. They truly did think that they were going through hell. And yet God said, I want you to know that through it all, and when it's all done, I will betroth you to me. My covenant with you is still good and faithful, and I love you and want, want you to be with me. So the reason this is such a scandalous message is because today, our society, we are so sex-craved. Sex is everything in our society. It's such a big deal, and so it's really hard for us to understand intimacy apart from sex. And when God is calling us to be intimate with him, sex is not a part of that, obviously. Even when we talk about people in the Bible, David and Jonathan had this super intimate relationship, this friendship. And people, especially in today's age, are saying, see, that proves that they were homosexual in some way. Where it doesn't have to be that way. It's just a perverseness in our own society, a perverseness within us that constantly wants to take these beautiful, sacred things and twist them or think ill of them. And so we have to do this. I'm going to use the word intimate. And I don't know what that means to you, but I'm meaning it in the sense of the biblical sense, in the sense of God wanting to be intimate with his people, in the sense of a mom and a dad being intimate and brothers and sisters being intimate in family. And we know that when sex enters into those situations, it obviously creates horrible, horrible things. But I'm using the word intimate more as in Haslam's you know, hierarchy of needs, belonging. Yes, we need food, shelter, water, all of those things. But to be able to live and exist in some sort of mental health state, we need some other things. And belonging and security are a huge part of that. And that's something that intimacy brings. And all the definitions that I looked up about the word intimacy, obviously there's sense of security, there's sense of closeness, there's all of those things. And oftentimes they would say between two people. And I understand that. But the Bible makes it very clear that there's another way to experience intimacy, and that's also between us and God. And I've known people who have lived their lives with horrible attachments, mom, dad, brother, sister, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever it might be, and that have still been able to find strong mental health, security, identity, because of the lifeline they have found in their intimacy with Jesus by faith, spiritual, all of that. And it's a battle. It's hard. But it's very important that we learn this. I say all this to help us to try and understand intimacy from a biblical concept. Intimacy is vitally important to the human soul. We were made by God to be intimate with God. It's no question about it. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. The reason you have a beat in your heart, the reason you have breath in your lungs, the reason that you have the chemicals all going around, the reason you have everything that you have is first and foremost to be in relationship with your maker. 
that's where you came from and for what purpose you were made. Now, there are other things. There are other realities, no doubt about it. But they're all supposed to be secondary to that. And I, like I said earlier, it's very, very difficult. It's very hard living in today's world, being so um, geared to our senses, you know, taste, touch, sound. This is how we find information. But, but God is something we find outside of that, primarily. Um, the Bible makes this very clear from the beginning to end, that in the beginning God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. They were walking in the garden. And the Bible even makes reference that they were naked, but there wasn't anything weird about that. There wasn't anything perverse about that. There wasn't anything shameful about that. There was an intimacy there that was okay. It was innocent, and it was beautiful, and it was life-giving. And then as you continue to read through the Bible, it concludes in John's Revelation where it shows the people of God now in a garden city where we see God face to face. And his name is written on our foreheads. It's a little throw out there for all you tattoo people. You're like, what's up, man? We're all going to be there someday, so might as well practice. I hope my daughters aren't listening. Um, And we don't need any light in that day because there is such a closeness to God who is the light. There's nothing blocking anymore. There's no confusion. We don't see through a glass dimly, but now face-to-face. Intimacy is the message of the gospel. One of the promises in Revelation is also that Jesus will give us a white stone with a name on it only known to he and us. Intimacy. That's like Hallmark gold right there. Hallmark Channel? Anyone? Anyone? It's not close enough to Christmas. I can't use Hallmark references right now. But intimacy is what God is trying to bring us into um, throughout the whole entirety of the Scriptures. Um, And intimacy is a beautiful thing. Sex is also a beautiful thing that God created. But there is a separate purpose and intent for both of those things. And what we're talking about is the intimacy that God is trying to call us into. And in Hosea chapter 2, you see it over and over and over again in this passage, this, this reference to something that definitely is words of intimacy. God says, I will allure her. God says, I will speak tenderly to her. God says, I will redeem even the broken things, even the times where she's turned away. I will somehow turn those into things that are not harmful or hurtful or shameful anymore. God says that it will be like in the day when I called her out of Egypt and she came and and we were so together. It was like that honeymoon that we had together. You will call me my husband. Again, that's intimacy. That's blasphemy if it's not inspired by God's Spirit. I'll remove the names of your other lovers. And I'll make a covenant with you and the beasts of the field. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. A repetition of three times, I will betroth, I will betroth, I will betroth. Another chance, I will marry you, I will marry you, I will marry you. Something I say to Brittany all the time is like, you want to get married? Like, I will marry you so serious right now. We're already married. We've been married for a long time. But there's just those moments where it's like, I don't know what else to say. I just want to marry you right now. 
She's like, we're married, man. No, she, she gets it. It makes me also think of that time when Jesus had, had risen from the dead, which is just wild to think about. And he's there on the beach right next to the Sea of Galilee, and he's cooking some fish because Jesus, he liked to fish. So there's a little throw out to all the fishermen in the room too. It's going to be some fishing. And he's, he's actually there creating this fish, got this fire, and his disciples are out there fishing. They're catching nothing. And somehow they notice him, and, and they, they get drawn in, and they come in, and they're all sitting by the fire, and Peter's there. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, can I ask you a question? And Peter's feeling a little funky, right? Because Peter just, you know, denied Jesus three times. While Jesus was going to the cross, people were like, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And he was like, no. And then another time they're like, hey, don't you know Jesus? And he's like, I don't know Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus? And then the next time they ask him again, he's like, I don't know Jesus. Bleepity bleep. And just starts cussing to prove that he doesn't know Jesus, I guess. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, can I ask you a question? Peter's like, oh, crap. He says, yes. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I like you. He says, Peter, do you love me? The second time. And you can feel Peter's heart bleeding a little bit here. And he looks at Jesus. He says, Jesus, I really like you. And he said, Peter, do you love me a third time? And Peter says, I love you. And Jesus said, then I want you to feed my sheep. Basically, he's saying, Peter, it doesn't matter what has happened. I want to marry you. I want to marry you. I want to marry you. I want to be betrothed to you. I want to be with you. I want love. I want intimacy with you. Even though you blew it, we're just starting over right now. And Peter, he did a great job after that of loving Jesus, of walking in intimacy with the Lord. Even to the extent at the end of his life, he loved Jesus so much that he didn't feel right about being crucified the same way Jesus was crucified. He said, do it upside down. Because he wanted to honor Jesus. Intimacy is what God is calling us to over and over and over again. John 17, Jesus prayed a prayer that again would feel totally blasphemous if it wasn't Jesus. And he said, Father, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. Somehow we are invited into the intimacy of the triune God. And I don't fully know exactly what that all will look like in the end, but it's a great gift. And as I was sitting there washing someone's feet at the calling on Friday night, as we were just trying to consecrate ourselves to the Lord and there was a couple of the guys that I was washing their feet. I just got hit with the love of God for these, these guys. And it was just like, whoa, it's powerful. It was intense. The love that, has, that God has for you is so deep. It's, so, it's strong enough to completely eliminate all other things. It provides so much security. These are the words that I wrote down as I've experienced the love of God. It produces covering, surrounding, defense, 
defended, protected, cherished, provided for, led and challenged and taught. This is what it means to experience intimacy with God. This is the result. And it's something that God is constantly calling his people to, and especially here in Hosea chapter 2. And uh, I was thinking about this when, when my wife and I were married. You know, it was cool. <laughs> it was awesome. And uh, I asked Brittany this morning, actually, I was like, do you remember the first time I said I love you to you? And uh, she paused for a minute and then said no. <laughs> and I was like, come on, are you serious? And she was like, well, do you remember it? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, and I was like, it seems like that would have been a big deal. We should have remembered that. But um, what I do remember is right around our first year of marriage um, anniversary, um, I remember, I think it was probably on our anniversary or something. I was trying to figure out a way to say I love you. And, and I remember saying I love you, and it just felt weak. It just felt like shallow. And, and there was a few reasons why. It's obviously, we'd only been married for one year, and to some extent, it's like, I love you so much. And she's like, well, yeah, it's only been one year. you got a lot more work to do, man. Um, but also, there's the reality, you know, that um, her father left after 22 years of marriage. And, and, I, and I knew that, and, and I, you know, I've kind of thought about that from time to time. And, you know, she knows the Lord, and she's found all she needs in Him. But I also, you know, feel this weight of like, you know, five years in, it feels strong and good, but then there's always just like, yeah, but, you know, we'll see what happens. And she's not like that with me or anything, but, but 10 years, it was like, there's a little more weight to it. Like, I love you. And then 15 years, I love you. And we're going to be 19 years in October, which is cool. Um, and, and I'll get to say it then, but I'm really looking forward to year 23. And again, this might just be me. But I can't wait to say it to her. 23 years of faithfulness to say, I love you. And I always will. And I know every time I say it, it gets deeper for her. And more believable. And it does its work in her. And her, me as well. And I can't wait to get to 50 years. I don't even know if I'll have hair or teeth or anything. But I'll be like, or whatever. Um, and it's just the weight, the, the strength of that of all those years of faithfulness, of all of that means, because it's hard sometimes. There's challenges. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes other things sound better than being faithful in marriage and family and all of those things. But there is nothing better. And we've worked through some tough times, and it just gets stronger and deeper. And it has its more perfect work in our souls, shaping us and securing us and, and causing beauty to come out of her and me. And I just, I mean, there's, it's just such a beautiful thing. That's why I think Ryan was alluding, like, there's something about marriage that teaches us about what God's trying to do. Just like there's something about having kids, you just have this understanding of God as father or mother in a new way. There's something about marriage that teaches us so much. And, and though I'm getting excited about the day where I get to say I love you after 50 years of marriage, when, when God was saying this to the Israelites, if you start counting from Abraham, where God made a covenant with Abraham, and that's where the Israelites came from, there have been about 1,300 years of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to them. And him continuing to say, Israel, doesn't matter what's happened or where you've been, I will betroth you to myself if you will have me. I will betroth you to myself if you will have me. I will betroth you to myself if you will have me. 
And then 700 years after that, God said the biggest I love you he could have when he sent his own son to make it very clear to the world once and for all that he is absolutely committed to us, that he wants us to be intimate with him. And Jesus came and he took on flesh and he walked and he was tempted in every way that we are. And he declared once and for all that God is committed to us. He loves us. And he will do anything for us. And he paid a price on that cross to get rid of everything that separates us. All of our sin. Everything that separates us from going back to that garden with him. To make it clear that he would do anything for us. That he is a faithful husband who wants us for his very own. And just because some of you are not as hallmarky as others, I wrote down some practical ways we might be able to understand what it looks like to be intimate with God today, right now, in the age we're living in. So one of those things, I think, is loving what he loves and hating what he hates, grieving over what he grieves over, rejoicing over what he rejoices over, I remember Brittany, when I first met her, she thought Great Danes were great. And I just started liking Great Danes. I remember she had a little joke she used to play with one of her friends about black minivans or something. And all of a sudden, I just started seeing black minivans everywhere. It's because I was in love with her. And whatever she was saying, whatever she I was studying her. And it's the same when we start to find ourselves loving what God loves, hating what God hates, grieving over what God grieves over, and rejoicing over what God rejoices over. And then it's responding when he calls. And this is an interesting one because the Lord does call to us. He does put things on our hearts. And some of us have gotten good at the practice of ignoring that or turning away from that or not really responding. And what God longs for is for him to be able to call to us and we respond because we are the most important thing. Not letting fear get in the way. Sometimes he calls with conviction. Sometimes he calls with correction. Sometimes he calls with blessing or revelation. Another way we can do this is prioritizing him above other things. The first moment of your day, who does it belong to? Most of us, it belongs to Apple which is the worst thing you could do in your life, by the way. If you get nothing out of this message, don't look at your phone the first thing in the morning. Just try and create a habit of saying, no, my first moment belongs to Jesus. The first of our day, the first of our time, the first of our finances. Look at your calendar. You can see a lot about what you devote yourself to. Your finances, where your treasure is. Huh? Where your treasure is, there's your heart. That's what the Bible teaches, and it's true. I'm not saying give your money to living streams with that or whatever. You can if you want to. That's great. But I am saying that, you know, it's a good way to measure where we're at, making sure he's first in all those things. Attention and affection and worship, like I said, it was real easy 
in that moment, just, just when we were singing that song, to kind of let the rest of the stuff fade away. But, but we got to do that more than just one hour a week. We got to figure out how to put that as a practice in our lives. Um, here's some, some might be silly things, might be real sobering things, I don't know. But I remember hearing of a kid who was thankful to Jesus, so he wrote a note and tied it to a balloon and sent it up. Now again, what happened to the balloon? Well, at some point popped and floated back down, <laughs> most likely. But there was a practice that he was doing with his own heart of saying, I'm not going to let this go by unacknowledged unresponded to. There was something so profound about that. Part of me wouldn't be surprised if when he gets to heaven, Jesus is like, hey, thanks for the note. I got it. I know a guy who one time was, you know, bought a, girl, a, a girlfriend a necklace and, and he just felt like the Lord was saying, hey, where am I at? And he realized that he was putting this girl first, so he took the necklace, threw it in a river. It was like, that's for you, Lord. Again, silly. I'm not saying go and throw necklaces and rivers and things, but I'm saying do practices that make your heart go in the way that you want your heart to go. Because the heart will respond. And then, obviously, there's communion, which is a practice that Jesus has given us. And so if you want to pull out your little cup and, um, and bread, we're going to take a moment here and do what Jesus asked us to do, taught his disciples to do. I know they mentioned baptism earlier in the service, and that's a great step we can take to consecrate, devote ourselves to the Lord. If you haven't done that, I really encourage it. Um, reach out to somebody. We can talk about it. But um, I'm going to go to my knees as we do this, and you're, you're welcome to do that if you're able or comfortable with that. let's just quiet our hearts and by faith understand that Jesus is in this room he's close he hears us we are here for you Jesus We might mess up a lot this, this week, Lord, but right now, this moment really does. We want to we give it to you and hear what you have to say and see what you want us to see. On the day before Jesus went to the cross, on the night that he was betrayed by a kiss of one of his friends, He got all his disciples together into this upper room, a quiet, intimate space. And he said he was very excited about spending this, this meal together with them. And as they walked into the room, it says that he got down on his knees and he washed their feet, each one of them. As a symbol of just saying, basically, there is nothing that I wouldn't do for you. And then they gathered around the table and had a meal. And, and at some point in the meal, he took bread and he handed a piece of it to all of them. 
And he said, I want you guys to do something often. Now and after I leave, I want you to remember me. And the way I want you to do it is I, I want you to take bread, I want you to break it, and I want you to eat it in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. And my body is broken so that we could be whole together. I want you to ingest it. And so we do that now, Jesus, in remembrance of you. Let's take the bread. And then he passed a cup of wine around and he wanted his disciples to drink this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the covenant that he has made with them, in remembrance of his blood that he was going to allow to be poured out for their cleansing. And it was a call to intimacy. And Jesus, we hear your call and we say, yes, we want you in our life. We want everything you have to offer. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Lord.